So today we're super excited to have Giles Palmer on the show. Giles is the founder of Brandwatch, a leading social media listening tool. He built Brandwatch from nothing to a team of over 500 employees with 2,000 customers and over 100 million in ARR. After launching the company for almost uh, 14 years ago, Brandwatch was recently acquired by Cision by, I believe, over $450 million. Uh, Giles, just a massive congrats and thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you, Gavin. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I want to ask you, how did you celebrate the deal and what's the first thing you bought? Um, so we celebrated the deal um, a few of, I mean, it was right in the middle of like full lockdown, right? So it's like the worst time to do a celebration. We haven't, and we want to organize a big party. We haven't done that yet. Um, but there were about six of us in the office um, and we did a town hall where I basically spoke, uh, you know, into Zoom to 550 people and said, look, we're selling the company and here's, here's who to and here's why and blah, blah, blah. Um, and there were five of my colleagues kind of in the office and we had, I think, six bottles of champagne. So one each and we just plowed through them uh, and we just had a bit of a giggle. Um, uh and you know told stories and stuff and then that evening those six people and a couple of others came back to my house and and we just stayed up till i don't know what time but you know early hours kind of chatting and 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 celebrating and reminiscing including actually a couple of ex-brandwatch people who you know fabulous alumni one of whom is dating one of our current uh employees uh so so they, they came over and it was just a really sort of intimate evening with some of the kind of earlier employees. Um, uh, and it was just very sweet. Yeah. And then first purchase, um, God, uh, what did I buy first? Um, probably some domestic thing off Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) Same with me. It's the same thing. Um, but actually it was like, it was kind of like a bit of an anticlimax for me. Like we didn't really do much. We just got some champagne, um, my wife and I just opened the bottle and just celebrated like together. But actually, uh, like the moment I signed the deal, I just started crying uncontrollably. Like I just uh, started like man. just bawling my eyes out <laughs> because like you know like the moment when you first start a company um, just flashed through my mind like the, the beginning stages mm. and how I went from like zero to like this big exit. Yeah, just went through my mind and I just kind of completely broke down. Oh God, that's amazing. Um, I didn't I didn't start crying. Um, but then there was this also this kind of weird thing where. We had um, something like 250 unaccredited U.S. investors. When we merged with Crimson Hexagon, Crimson Hexagon had done, you know, a big fans and uh, friends and family round, and they had tons of small U.S. investors. So we had to go through a legal process of kind of getting, because the deal was 80% cash, 20% stock, it wasn't all cash. So we had to go through a process to kind of get those small investors in the U.S. to basically say yes to the stock stock part. That took three months. So, you know, between signing and closing was three months. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that was a – it wasn't close, close. There was still a tiny risk that it would, you know, fall apart. So there was that slight anxiety or, or maybe not anxiety, ambiguity, um, uh, even when we signed. So it's, it's just kind of an unusual period. Um, and then when it closed, it was sort of a sort of a not less of an event, but then – but then the money transfers into your into your bank account, and then it's like, wow, that's uh, it's su- super real at that point. So, so yeah, it was. Um, and then and then there's the stuff that you will be very familiar with, which is the you know stepping down from your CEO role and and handing over your baby effectively to somebody else. And 
And in particular for me, uh, you know, the Brownwatch staff now report to somebody else. Um, and he's fabulous. Um, but it's like, that's not me anymore. So I've had to kind of, my identity, I don't know if you feel the same, you know, over the f- 14 years, my identity, certainly professionally and partly personally, and the kind of Brownwatch journey have, be- have become intertwined and just to kind of pull those apart and is, is, is a I went through an afternoon when when I kind of handed over to to Ulrich, who's the guy that's running it now. Um, I had an afternoon of real sadness and like almost sort of semi grieving, where um, you know I was saying, oh, "Well, I can I can show up to your next leadership meeting and maybe talk about this or this." And he went, "You know what? I'd, I, you know, I'd, I'd like I'd like you to leave this one to me because this is my first meeting with the leadership team of the new Brownwatch kind of business with Incision and." Um, uh, and if it's okay with you, uh, you know, I'd like to take this on myself and I, and which is completely right. Um, but I was like, oh, okay. And then, and then I went through this kind of afternoon of sort of loss actually, which was, um, another interesting experience. Mm. No, it's the same way I felt. There's definitely a period of grieving when you sell a company. Um, it's just, I've had to take a step back, you know, as founder, like I'm, I'm no longer the CEO either. So I can't make decisions. So our new CEO makes all the decisions. I'm behind the scenes kind of guiding her. Um, I, th- I think we're getting there, but there's definitely a sense of loss and uh, just going from like hero to zero overnight. So looking back, like what was it that made you decide to sell? Um, it was a combination of factors, actually, um, in no particular order. Uh, you know, I've been doing this for 14 and a half years and I was, look- I, you know, I look forward and think, you know, I'm 52. Do I want to be doing this in five years time? And I came to the conclusion, probably not. Right. So, so I was personally on a sort of an exit sort of timeline. And then there were some other sort of more practical, pragmatic things. One is around the fact that we took on our first VC funding in 2012. So, you know, nine years ago. Um, And nine years is, it's not like a, you know, an outlier for VC investments, but it's certainly in the sell zone, right? In terms of timeline, because they've got their own business model. Um, and they're not long-term holders. They they invest and then they exit and they give a return to their limited partners. So there was a little bit of emerging pressure. They were super um, patient and incredible to work with all of our, all of the investors that we had. But there was a little bit of emerging pressure around. Okay, what's the exit plan? And that hadn't really happened. That that that, that really only came up in the last kind of eighteen months. Um, but so there was a there was a kind of we're on a timeline here. So and then the third thing is. I think probably more from a sort of sort of helicopter view sort of idea. Software companies um, really tend towards scale, right? You know, there's in order to be profitable and innovative, um, you need scale. Um, so, so there's only a few companies that that are emerge in a particular market for whom the market is so big that they can stay independent for you know, forever or very long time. So, you know, you think of companies like Salesforce or Atlassian or um, ServiceNow, these sorts of very large companies in big, you know, total addressable markets and they and they build a foothold and, and, and it can scale, obviously Google and Apple and so on. But for most of us, um, we are operating within a market that has constraints. So, you know, my view on the the market that Brandwatch is operating in is it's probably a $2 billion market, give or take. Now, you know, even with a, with half of that market, um, we're only going to be a billion dollar revenue company, which is big, but it's not, it's not like long-term scalable. So it, it looks, 
increasingly like, well, we're going to have to be part of somebody else's larger software group in order to have that scale and innovation combo. Um, uh, and once you realize that, um, then really it's about kind of making sure that you are positioning yourself for the right for the right kind of transaction at the right time and, and, and finding the right home for the thing that you've built. Um, so all of that kind of was in the melting pot. And then in November last year, we got, you know, this wasn't the first time this had happened, but it tends, in my experience, it tends to happen periodically where a group of potential buyers are looking to buy in your, mar- in your space at roughly the same time. So we had like five inbound, like genuine five in- inbound sort of, we really want to acquire a company like you or frankly, you guys um, around like November, December 2020. Um, and so I took that to the board and and um, and we kind of set a target price. Um, we said, well, you know, if we could get to this price, then we would consider selling at this point. Whereas actually our plan was to get to the end of the year, be growing end of 2021, be growing at high teens, like 17, 18%. And then transact, and our target price was like five hundred and fifty million dollars because we I thought that was kind of reasonable. Um, so we've we've gone earlier and we've sold for you know twenty percent less, but we've taken out the execution risk and and there's still some upside with the stock that, that's part of the deal. So so it was an interesting and slightly marginal decision. Um, in the end, uh, it came down probably to me thinking actually you know you don't know when these opportunities come along. Um, and it, we might be waiting another two or three years. And uh, although my motivation is high and I love my job and I love the company, I'm, I'm kind of getting to the point where I, I was getting a little bit of itchy feet. And, and also, I don't know about you, but I mean, I was paid well, but all of my net worth was tied up really in the stock of this company, which is illiquid. And, um, and it's not that I want to buy yachts and, you know, swan around the world and all that sort of stuff, but it, it feels like a kind of, a pragmatic risk management sort of strategy for kind of my my own kind of assets and and you know in due course my families and so I actually started thinking about you know the future of my kids and all of that sort of stuff as well and it all sort of played into this idea that actually this transaction at this value uh, is good it works for me um, and as long as uh, we find a buyer who is going to be sensitive and thoughtful to the way you know the staff and the, what we've built then then now's not a bad time to sell it's a very similar story to mine i, I went through the same thing i had also about three or four possible acquirers reaching out for me it was middle of 2020 so it took a long time to get to the actual exit uh but i wasn't planning to sell either i just um never thought i'd ever sell a company so they reached out spoke to a few well-known sort of um tech companies in silicon valley and then I was really, I was really worried about the legacy. Like, how could I keep sendable, sendable forever? You know, for the next thirty years. Mm. So I found one one acquirer that promised me that they would keep sendable as it is. They wouldn't change it, but they would operate the business for me, and I could step away. Um, so that was that was really important to me. And then obviously, you know, I, I just turned forty. I'm thinking about my kids, the future, all my risk tied into the company. And if if for whatever reason, Facebook or you know Twitter had blocked us off, you know, that's kind of the end of of my sort of. Like my finances are gone essentially, so I thought of thought of all those things as well, like looking after my my family and the future, and uh, maybe trying to do it again. You know, I'm still young enough where I could try another startup, yeah, and take the lessons I've learned in 12, 13 years, put it to something else. But yeah, very similar about the risk thing, and you know, having everything tied up in, into one one big asset. Um, yeah. So why Cision for you? How come you went with Cision in the end? Um. Well, they got to our target price, 
which was uh, like a binary switch for for us as as shareholders or the board. Um, uh, there were there were there were a couple others that were there or thereabouts. So it wasn't an obvious like oh you've paid by far the most and like we're going with you guys. It wasn't like that. Um, but um, Cision kind of ticked a whole bunch of boxes, uh, A, around the transaction, the structure of the transaction. Um, secondly, around the scale thing, you know, they they, uh, they were probably the biggest, actually, company that was um, that was interested in terms of, like, scale, size, revenue. Um, and then, um, I, you know, I, I got to know the company, and, it, and, um, and I wrote about it in the blog, actually, uh, or in a press release, I can't remember which, um, and they, although they've got a bit of a messy history of acquisitions, which haven't really been integrated super well, and it's a little bit complex on the inside, the team that they've brought in to kind of deal with that and and um, kind of improve it, it is very credible. Um, and I really like them. They were very thoughtful. They were very, they did exactly what they said they were going to do in every single step of the of the kind of transaction which is a good sign. Um, and the they've got a single owner, um, private equity company, which like a lot of these companies do. Um, and, and so they, they don't, they're not tied to the public kind of quarterly cycles of, of pressure around reporting. They can take a longer term view. They're ambitious. I just thought, you know what, it's a bit messy, but I've got faith in this team that's been given, you know, that's now running it. And, and there was an, there was a, a good fit in terms of uh, me and them, I think. Mm. So you mentioned you, you did the all hands to the whole company announcing the news. How did your team react to that? Mixed, actually. Mixed. Um, some of the old guard were like, went through probably something a little bit similar to me where there was this sort of, you know, um, fear or, or a bit of grieving around, you know, we were forging our own path and we were in charge of our own destiny and all of that fabulous stuff that you have as a as a young company um some of the new folks were like this is amazing but overall i think and then there was another thing which was actually didn't get talked about much because it's doesn't apply to everybody but there's a lot of people in the company who either bought shares in the early rounds so every every time we did a vc vc raise well, at least the first two, actually, we offered start the, the same shares to staff at a twenty five percent discount, and we had more than quarter of a million pounds worth of investment from staff into the company, right? So, and that first one was in two thousand twelve. The second one was in two thousand fifteen. So there were something like fifty or so people inside the company that actually had invested, and then there were another I don't know seventy or so that had options. So. You know these these guys a little bit like me had you know were sitting on uh, on assets that were non liquid and in many cases they had young they have young families and they, and they wanted to buy a house or you know do that do that kind of home nest building sort of thing and and of course they they have this you know money tied up in Brownwatch so so for for a lot of our stuff there was this kind of like oh wow so now I'm going to actually get a payout and. And actually, a couple of a couple of people I've spoken to said, "I'm going to go part time because I know I don't need to work as I don't need to work full time. I'm going to choose to work three days a week." And you know, some of our senior engineers have said that to me, and it's like, great! It's so fabulous, fabulous to give people that flexibility, or not give, for them to have that flexibility now. So they went on a you know similar sort of journey to me. Overall, I think 
there was a mixture of excitement and and just surprise and also worry about oh what does this mean change change is always you know difficult um and yeah. we're going through that right now yeah so is there anything you're doing to kind of keep the culture intact um well we're keeping nearly all like 98% or 99% of the people there's a few com- a few people that have left um uh a few senior people for whom there was like a you know a duplication of role for with with because Brownwatch is merging with Falcon, which is a you know kind of a, you'll know that well. Um, uh, and so you know, there's two CFOs, there's two CMOs, there's all of that kind of stuff. So we've so we we end up having to choose one in in you know f- for those. But but the Falcon um, uh, culture is pretty similar to Brandwatch. So actually, there's a really nice. And it was kind of weird when you start meeting people from another company for, for whom the culture is very similar. There was almost a like, oh my god, you're like you're like cousins we haven't met yet. And we had something a little bit similar with Crimson Hexagon, but even more so, I would say, with Falcon, certainly on the cultural side. So there's like 400 of them, and there's like 500 of us, and it's like this this really interesting kind of bringing together of these two companies um, and these two cultures. Uh, I think, and I hope that actually the cultural integration. Uh, is not going to be difficult for for Brownwatch and Falcon, and I don't think, I hope, and expect that not too much will change. Um, but of course, there's a there's a new leader. Ulrich is is and he's got you know he's different to me, um, not, not not hugely different, but you know enough different. So there's going to be changes, but um, I think I think it'll be all right. Um, yeah. So looking back at your career, I guess as founder and CEO, um, what have you most enjoyed and least enjoyed about being being in that in that position? Oh. You know what? When you look back, the stuff that you least enjoyed at the time is probably the most memorable, and the stuff that you actually appreciate the most now. So it's really interesting where you, where you get distance from things. Like the one of the most challenging, in fact, the most challenging working life of my career was uh, when we announced our gender pay gap um, data, and the first time uh, we did that was like three years ago, um, and uh, we didn't have to because we were underneath the size. For, I think you had to be 400 people in the UK and we were like 300 or something. So, so we, but we chose to, right? And um, uh, the chief people officer um, decided that she wanted to do that or that sh- she would like to. And I was like, yeah, that's great. And then uh, nine months later, when it came to actually releasing the data, um, she'd actually left the company and <clears throat> we published that the CFO was in charge of... Um, was in charge of it uh and he published or one of his team published the data on the government website um without announcing it internally and without even sharing it with me so so what happened was like at 10 p.m that night somebody wrote on our slack channel have you seen this um brownwatch's gender pay gap is 22 percent and uh i can't believe that and i can't believe they've snuck it out and all of this sort of stuff and I was like, "Oh my god!" I had I didn't know it was twenty two percent, and I had no idea we published it. So it was an absolute clusterfuck. Um, understandably, the women in the company were outraged and like, "This is outrageous," you know. And so there was a lo- there were loads of questions around. So basically, men are being paid more than the women for the same job. And it's like, uh, "No, no, that's not what this is saying." Um, uh, but we had to check every single role that that was absolutely not what was happening. I mean, I think we've, we've been reasonably diligent or pretty, dil- you know, we have been diligent up to that point around that. It's illegal, if not, nothing else, as well as immoral. So um, so that wasn't the issue. The issue 
was reasonably complicated and we hadn't done the analysis of why um, why there was a problem or why there was 22%. So I went on to Women in Technology Slack channel and said, can you, um, can you just like, you know, I mean, I didn't say calm down or anything as patronizing as that, but I said, can you be patient and let us do the analysis and then we'll talk about why it's where it's at and what we're going to do about it. And, and I was just attacked. It was like, yeah, thanks. For, why don't you just give us the data and we'll do it and, you know, we'd stop mansplaining it to us and all of this sort of stuff. And I was like, blimey. It was like clearly the, you know, protocol of like how you talk to your boss, that just went out the window. And I've always been pretty open with people and like we've always had good dialogue internally, but I just felt completely attacked and and, and understandably so, right? Um, and, there, and, and so it was just every day, there's a little group of four of us, um, me, the CMO, one of uh, the person who runs comms in his department, um, who's, a, who's a woman, and another woman who did the analysis or um, the, for, uh, compiled the data. The kind of four of us got together and we were like, what, what, you know, what, what do we know today? And what are we going to say? So every day we were putting out these messages, like we're going to talk about it tomorrow. And then, and then eventually... We got the data together. We did some analysis and I called a town hall where, you know, basically I sat at the front of the company and just got uh, an, an answer Q&A and, and it was brutal. And uh, there were a lot of people that were very, very upset and um, and wanted uh, explanations, um, as I said, completely understandably. So, you know, it, turned, it, was t- it turns out that, you know, we had more senior men problem. We had more men in engineering than women, and engineers got tended to pay a little bit more than other non-engineers across the company, another problem. Um, uh, those were the kind of the two main things. And it's like, okay, what are we going to do about this? And, and so eventually, um, you know, I, I said uh, – you know, apologized, obviously, and uh, went into kind of full listening mode rather than mansplaining mode, or at least I tried to. Um, and I, at the end of it, I said, look, in five years, we're going we're gonna to put a target out there, which is that this number will be zero in five years' time. And, you know, a lot of people say, said, to, um, well, you know, that's not going to be achievable. So why did you put a target up there that's unachievable? Um, why don't you go for five percent or ten percent? And you know that would be that would be you know more achievable. And I was like, well, I can't justify anything but zero. So how, why would you put a target out there for gender pay equality, which is not zero? Um, it just doesn't make any sense. So that's the target, and we'll do what we'll we'll do everything we can to get there. And we've made big progress, right? We're we're I think we're to single figures now, or, or pretty close to it. Um, uh, but there's still a long way to go. Anyway, that was a horrific experience for me personally i felt uh like i'd let the company down like i felt i just it was just awful um but i look back on it and i just think what an extraordinary uh learning experience what a humbling experience what a what an what what an important thing to have gone through and and so so i look at back at it as one of the most important weeks of my career even it was even though it was one of the worst, uh, it was genuinely traumatic for me that week. Um, uh, and not for, me, for, 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 for all of the people in the company, especially the women. So I'm not saying, oh, God, poor on me. Not at all. I'm just saying that it was a very tricky uh, situation for all of us. Mm. So um, in your blog post, when you announced the acquisition, uh, you said, as for me, I haven't worked so hard for so long on something that I care so much about to walk away. Mm. What made you decide to stay and not walk away? Um, I guess what I wrote actually, which is that I care deeply, but I've put so much of my 
heart and soul into this thing. And it is, it is kind of in a funny sort of way, I'm part of it and it's part of me. And, and I, you know, I need to s- separate from it in stages, I guess. But, but also I re- I really do care about, about how it lands and how it is set up for ongoing success. Um, because it would be absolutely <coughs> um, awful to, to, to see something that you built kind of decay. Like, you know, you, you build your house and let's say, and then come back to it 20 years later and it's looking like nobody's ever looked after it. And you just think, oh God, that's, I built that or like, I was partly responsible for it. And then there's all the people, right? I have a, a duty of care to all the people that have joined Brownwatch and they joined partly because of where we're going and, you know, so on and so forth. And then I've changed that and I've like said, no, we're going to go in this other direction. And, 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 you know, some of them might be thinking, well, that's not what I signed up for. So I want to make sure that I um, do what I can to, to smooth that transition. So, yeah, something else you mentioned in your blog was that you were having your asses kicked by Radiant 6. Um, you also talk about the importance of competition, especially in a new market. So how do you think about competition now? I love it. I love it. <laughs> you love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 um, I think it is a forcing factor for performance and, uh, and change. And, you know, you can spend your whole time talking about something and like disagreeing or whatever, mulling things over internally. But then when suddenly a competitor launches something or says something that is, like uh, a challenge for you, like okay, right, we need to react, we need to do this, and it's energizing, and it's. I have a strong bias to action, uh, and and where things get you know discussed and no action is taken, that drives me crazy over time. I'm very, I'm pretty impatient, um, and so when a competitor kind of dry helps you kind of uh, perform, then I love it. I think it's great. It's like it's, you think about. I can think about it in sports, like you know. Uh, Djokovic wouldn't be as good as he was as he is without Nadal and Federer to, to aim at. So, you know, competition helps everybody get better. It's actually funny because when I came to your offices all those years ago to discuss the sendable integration, you were speaking about Sprinkler and you were like really like worried about Sprinkler and how you wanted to do, kind of compete with them. Um, how do you feel about like obviously now with Falcon, as you mentioned, like being all things to all people versus kind of pro- focusing on one area and doing that with one thing well? Well, I don't think we focus on one area. I mean, it's, we've expanded over time, but I've yeah, got yeah. a flippant answer to that question, which is it's no longer my responsibility. Um, <laughs> but I've got a more interesting answer, which is yeah. uh, I think it's dangerous, actually. I think that uh, a lack of focus is a is a problem. And, you know, there's this idea of like, uh, actually one of our investors called it pe- or peanut butter, where you're kind of spreading your resources thinly over a large area versus going to going deep and like nailing one thing. And if you look at the companies that we all admire the most and the products that we use spotify netflix google google not so much anymore apple they're very focused and they just build one or two things to an extremely high standard and and there is a huge danger i think in in this peanut butter thing where uh, you do everything to a kind of meh, kind of good enough level and that doesn't for me quality is like the number one driver product quality you know in, in particular so yeah, it is it is a it is a concern for sure. Yeah. Um and then what sort of operating system do you use? Obviously you've got over five hundred and fifty people or you had working at Brandwatch. How do you ensure everyone's going rowing in the same direction? Do you use OKRs or how do you set the vision and then make sure all these people are following that that sort of plan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Great question. 
much easier when you're smaller, right? Um, where you can just like talk to people. Um, you have to become more disciplined as a CEO. I, I hired a head of strategy. She was amazing. And uh, she and I worked great together. And, and she helped me uh, with structure and, uh, and planning. Um, and we formed a really nice combo. Um, uh, she's now a VC, actually. Um, so that was having the right people around you to compliment you. We, we used, um, we used, I didn't want to kind of create a strategic framework to kind of like, okay, this is my strategic framework and this is what we're going to do. So we borrowed somebody else's and there's a few of them out there, but we used, uh, the, the strategic framework within the book called the advantage by Patrick Mancioni. And we did a two day offsite, uh, me and the senior team. And there's kind of nine of us. Um, and we basically built the brand watch playbook following the, the strategic framework laid out in that book. And that playbook, basically everything keyed off that. The OKRs keyed off it. We talked about it in in, in monthly town halls. Um, we shared it across the company. Um, it was it, it was something uh, which was a really important artifact that uh, that you know we used as a kind of as a as a as a kind of a thing to bring everybody together and bring clarity to our to our strategy. And then the execution was was really driven by OKRs and, and lots of intra-team, intra between-team communication. Because as you grow, as you, as you know, you become siloed because you need to be good at marketing, you need to be good at sales, you need to be good at product. But then you have to kind of not unsilo yourself, but you have to build joints between these silos. And, and, and that actually is, is quite, that can be pretty challenging. So the playbook helped us do that a lot. Cool. Yeah, I think that's a stage right now where, you know, we're reaching like 50, 60 employees now. And even that, that those, those breakdowns of communication are happening right now where the silos are forming. So I'll, I'll definitely check out that book. Um, I realize we're almost uh, up for time. So last question for you. As I mentioned before we started recording, uh, I'd like to reflect on like the less repeatable things I did over the years to propel Sendable forward. So do you have any sort of tactics or advice you can share that you used in your time at Brandwatch that wasn't necessarily scalable and helped to move your business forward? Yeah, uh, the the one thing which we were always worried about from a scaling perspective was culture, especially when we uh, th- when we started bringing in professional advisors, uh, professional investors, venture capitalists, and we just thought, oh, our culture is going to change, or when we mo- when we opened up offices in other countries, and so on and so forth. Um, what I I think I've learned uh, over the course of the journey is that uh, actually culture scales pretty well. Maybe if you, maybe if we'd had a different, you know, maybe if I'd stepped down after five years and a new leader would come in, then culture would change. But if the leadership stays consistent, uh, especially got founder CEO, um, I think culture actually scales super well. And why or how does it do that? I don't know. But 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 I think I mean I've definitely sort of evolved myself. I've tried to, and I've you know I've been working with a coach for the or two different coaches for the last you know at least five years. So I've tried to kind of upgrade myself as we go along the journey, but I also um, try to stay as kind of straightforward and as uh, as as kind of connected to who I am as much as possible. So you know, when I say stuff out loud, there's there's a filter, but it's not a huge filter, and so people in, internally know who they're dealing with, uh, warts and all, right? And you know, there are some people that that think I'm a pain in the ass absolutely and there are others that think I'm great but I'm sure but I hope but um but I think the cultural piece um weirdly doesn't it, I didn't think it was scale but it kind of did um and in terms of actual active things that we've done um 
Ooh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe just maybe kind of uh, caring, socializing. That doesn't that that take. It's it's the sort of thing that is so important to to the health of a company. How much the people in charge and the leaders and the next level down. So how much people care about each other and the people that work for them. And indeed how much, you know, we all care about our peers. So I think that um, if I was to rewrite our values, our, our values are, don't include the word care, but I think that I would put care in there next time around, because I think it's absolutely fundamental to the health of an organization. Especially now with COVID. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure how you scale it other than keep talking about it and, and, and try to try to imbue it in people's behavior. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, thank you so much, Giles, for joining us today. Um, where's the best place for people to find you online? Is, it, is the best place LinkedIn or? LinkedIn, um, Twitter, I'm uh, Judo9, uh, J-O-O-D-O-O-9. Um, yeah, you can find me online pretty easily, I hope. Cool, and hopefully we can meet in person in London or in Brighton at some point soon. Um, I love that, man. I love that. I'm kind of share more stories yeah cool thank you thank you Gavin 